I invite you to take a Bible, either your own perhaps, or one from underneath the pew in front of you, and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, verses 23 to 26. This morning we focus on what Christ did at the end of the age when he came the first time. And next week we will focus in the following verses on what Christ does at the end of the age when he comes the second time. Hebrews 9, 23 to 26. Therefore, now that refers back to verses 19 to 20, I believe, where it talks about the covenant book and the people's bodies and the tabernacle and the vessels being cleansed with blood of animals. Therefore, it was necessary for copies, the copies of the things in the heavens, to be cleansed with these, that is, these sprinklings, these animal sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year, with the blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often, since the foundation of the world, but now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Father, I ask that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see this that the taste buds of our souls would be quickened to taste this, that we would be given ears to hear, that we might be able to smell the aroma of Christ here, that we would see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ here, who is the image of God, and that we would believe that some in this room right now who entered unbelieving, without any taste in their souls for the things of heaven or the things of the Spirit at all, utterly in bondage to the flesh and the things of this world, would awaken by the power of God and come alive to spiritual things being spoken of in this text and would believe in them and be saved, and that your people would be strengthened, and that pastors would be built up, and that their arms would be strengthened for the work you've called them to do. Minister to us now, I pray, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. I want to make sure as we begin unfolding these verses that you know the difference between Star Wars and the book of Hebrews. Not everybody sees a difference. Not everybody believes there's a significant difference because this is a myth and that's a myth. And you can choose your myth. If you want a Bible myth, you can have a Bible myth. And if you want a movie myth, 
You can have a movie myth because that's really all that matters is that you have a myth that works for you. Myths are, are stories, they don't have to be true, in which there's a, a symbolic construction of language and event and experience that helps you make sense out of your life and your reality. And so what's important in life, they say, is that you find your myth that works, that's powerful for you and gives meaning to your life and helps you get some equilibrium and maybe even some satisfaction out of your brief, meaningless stint on the globe before you return to the dust. Now this talk about myth may sound like it just comes over from some philosophy class or some advanced linguistics anthropology class, but in fact it comes out of yesterday's newspaper, as many of you know, and needs to be in our face as we reckon with how we're going to hear this story of the book of Hebrews. Let me read you a key sentence from yesterday's newspaper. For some pre-adolescent boys, Star Wars functions as a kind of religion, giving them spiritual nourishment and opening the door to questions of redemption, forgiveness, and morality, sometimes more potently than their formal religious upbringing ever has. They are finding their myths in unexpected places, implying you'd expect them to find their myth at church. Get it? Now, what, what interests me here is not that Star Wars functions as a religion for some, nor that the obvious is true, namely that Star Wars as a cinema, cinema, whatever the word is, graphic production is more exciting than to Sunday school. I mean, that's very easy to explain because computer enhanced cinematography and flannel graph is no contest. <laughs> There's no surprise here. The reality behind the cinema and behind the flannel graph might be like a firecracker and a hydrogen bomb, which in fact is the case. But neither of those are surprising or interesting to me. What interests me in this text is the assumption of the writer that you choose your myth, either at church or at the movies. Everybody needs a myth to live by. It doesn't have to do with truth, it's a capital T. It has to do with a, a system of symbols, events, experiences in a flow that draws you up into it and gives your life some semblance of order and meaning and excitement and worth and perhaps some pleasure along life's way. And so find your myth. Kids are finding them in surprising places, the writer says. He quotes a professor of religion, usually a quote from a professor of religion in articles like this. 
And the professor of religion applies it to television like this. It does what religion does. It provides a symbolic system through which you interpret the world. So television is another source of myth-making and myth-absorption. A, a symbolic structure so that as you look at the chaos of the world, you can get some bearings. Here's a program that make, helps me make sense, or here's a movie that helps me make sense, or here's the Bible. And so just choose your myth and make sure it works for you. That's the spirit. Now, if this were just out of a philosophy class in a university or a few scholarly books, I wouldn't bring this up and mess up your mind with it. But in fact, it's yesterday's newspaper and it's in the air, right? It's just in the air we breathe that uh, the Bible and Star Wars and uh, you name it, choose your novel, are in the business of portraying possible narratives of life and history and choose one that works for you and gives you significance and meaning and help. Now, here's what I want you to do with all of that. I want you to say, okay, I hear that, I see that, and I want to put it in front of me. And here comes a sermon on Hebrews. And you got to make a choice here now. And I want to tell you what my suggested choice is for you. This writer and this preacher don't think that way about the Bible. The story that is being told of a sovereign God creating the world. You never get that on a screen or a flannel graph. And the Son of God penetrating history and clothing himself with humanity and living a life of stunning, glorious, loving, miracle-working, sinlessness, dying the most excruciating, horrible death that could never be portrayed, rising, having atoned for the sins of his people, ascending into heaven, seated in majesty at his Father's right hand, moving by an almighty spirit throughout the world, coming in glory someday to wrap up this story, is no myth. Rather, it really happened. There's a real Christ. There's a real cross. There's real blood. There was a real grave, a real resurrection, a real ascension. He really, as a God-man, is at the Father's right hand today. We will see him when he comes. That's next week's text. And we will really, in glorified bodies, be in a new world of righteousness and peace forever and ever if we have embraced this real, true history as our own. That's what this writer assumes. That's what this preacher assumes. You've got to decide. Are you going to follow the contemporary American way of, oh, I'll choose this myth, or I'll choose this myth, or this myth, because it moves me. It connects me with some spirituality. Instead of saying, there is truth with a capital T. It's written across history by Almighty God, and He's going to wrap it up. And those who've been drawn into fellowship with Him through belief in that history and that Christ... 
I pray that you will see things that way. Let's go to the text. For 1400 years, give or take a century, starting with the Exodus and Mount Sinai, it was God's will that his people Israel foreshadow and anticipate the death of his son, Jesus Christ, through the shedding of the blood of animals, by which ceremonially there was cleansing for the tabernacle and the utensils and the relics and the people's bodily form. And in anticipation of the event, the sins themselves. That was the will of God, that these, these outward touchable things like the tabernacle could be ceremonially cleansed by the blood of animals. But he says in verse 23 here, that the heavenly things of which these are copies and shadowings, these heavenly things can never be cleansed by that kind of sacrifice, but rather, it says, you see there, better sacrifices are going to be required if something is to happen at the spiritual level or at the heavenly level. And then he comes to verse 24. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one like that Old Testament tabernacle, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, when I got to this verse in my meditations, I was really troubled by this verse and the verse before it. And then I got really encouraged and excited. Here's the troubling part. This verse and verse 23 together make it sound like heaven needs cleansing. You see that? Verse 23, these heavenly things will never be cleansed by those old kinds of sacrifices. It's going to take something better to cleanse the heavenly things. The heavenly things themselves have to be cleaned with better sacrifices. Now, why is that? Is heaven dirty? Are heavenly things defiled? Hmm. So I got out a few commentaries to see what other people thought about this. And here's a few ideas. One idea is Satan is in heaven, or has been. Remember the story of Job? Comes into the presence of God and makes his case so he can go beat up on Job. So Satan's dirty. So heaven needs cleansing. Another idea was that uh, Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against principality, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and world rulers of this present darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness where? In the heavenly realms. In heaven. So there's this warfare going on. You got these wicked, filthy, demonic powers in the heavenly places. And so heaven needs cleansing. Now, I had no problem with those interpretations. If they're true, theologically, fine. Christ can clean up heaven through his sacrifice. That's just fine. I just don't think that's what's on this writer's mind. Let me tell you what I think is on his mind here. When you read verse 24, 
You see what Jesus is doing now with his sacrifice, which is, I think, the summation of that phrase, the better sacrifices. I don't think the plural there is meant to mean that Jesus has a whole bunch of different sacrifices that he offers, but rather the sacrifice of all that he is and was is summed up in one great act. And he goes into heaven after his resurrection into the Holy of Holies with that. Why? Verse 24. To appear in the presence of God for us. We're the ones who mess up heaven. John Piper is the problem in heaven, not Satan. It's my filth that's got to be dealt with. The big issue for John Piper is not whether Satan's been there, but what's going to happen when I get there. I had this picture in my mind this morning as I was praying over this sermon. So I added here, since we're in the second service and you folks can stay as long as I keep you. <laughs> I had this picture in my head this morning, because I had a mother a little bit like this, of a, of a beautiful, immaculate palace. And dust doesn't settle longer than ten minutes in this place. And the carpet is flawless. Everything is in place. And surrounding this palace is just one big field of mud. And I'm in it. And I knock on the door. And no way is she going to let me in there, right? May I come in? I'm hungry. I'd like to spend eternity with you. <laughs> and she looks at me. Let's just fix the metaphor here. God looks at me and says, sure, come on in. Now, how can that happen? I can't go in there. I can't go into heaven. You give me 30 minutes and I've proved why I'm a mess for heaven. Any 30 minutes of my life unfits me for glory. So what Jesus has got on his mind here is not Satan and not demons, but John Piper and all of you. And this is the encouraging part. That was the troubling part. Here's the encouraging part. You know what keeps a lot of people away from heaven and away from Jesus and away from salvation? The demonic blindness of Satan whispering, you're too dirty. You're too dirty to go in that church. You're too dirty to go into that relationship with Jesus. You're too dirty to think you could ever go to heaven. And people buy it. Right in this room, there are people struggling with that right now because you've got a history of filth. If you look back 20 years and you, you say to yourself, if they knew what I did from age 14 to 34, they would kick me out of this place and God wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. I am so dirty. And when that's not just a thought in the head, but a, a just a, a vile feeling in the heart, perhaps because that's what people have told you and you know it. Many people do not come to Christ because of that. Isn't that strange? 
Because the point of this text is, and I want you to underline it if you care about it. He went into the presence of God with his cleansing agent for us. So at the door of this mansion that is spotless inside is Jesus. And he's got this incredible cleansing machine, or however you want to picture it. And you say, there's no way I can come in there. I am so dirty. I will ruin everything. I touch this living room will be a mess. The kitchen will be a mess. The den will be a mess. Everything I touch will be a mess. And God will hate me. And he'll kick me out into a worse hell than I was destined for anyway. And so thank you anyway. I'm going home. And Jesus grabs you. He says, listen. I died. So you wouldn't talk like that. Stop listening to that lie. And then he starts to cleanse you off. And in one fell swoop, we'll get to that in a minute, in verse 26, he cleans you up. And so this is God's way of saying this morning, through me to you, on the basis of his word, come to me, all you filthy. Come to me, all you defiled. Come to me, all you gross, wicked, horrible sinners. Come to me. I didn't send my son into the world. To call righteous people to repentance. I came to call filthy people to repentance. My mansion is designed for filthy people. And I sent my son to take care of that. So that he would come in here with a better sacrifice to cleanse heaven from your sin. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. You're not going to mess up God's heaven. Believe in this great finished work. Now, let's see what that finished work is in verses 25 and 26. Don't take it for granted, folks, that you can get to heaven. Oh, how many people today don't have any vision of the holiness of God at all. They don't tremble. He's holy. He's pure. He's just. He's righteous. And nobody's coming into his presence except by Christ. So it's real important that we see what Christ did here. Verse 25 says, He did not enter heaven that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood not his own. Otherwise, Jesus would have needed to have suffered often since the foundation of the world. Now, what does that mean? I think it means this. If your conception of the finished work of Jesus Christ is modeled solely on the Old Testament priests who yearly walked into the Holy of Holies and sh gave that blood of the sacrifice so that the atonement could happen. If, you're, if your mind is stuck there, and that's the way you conceive Jesus doing it, then not only would the Son of God have to die yearly, He would have had to start dying yearly at the foundation of the world. Why is that? Because what we know already from Hebrews is that this act at the middle of history, 
is stretching itself forward and backward to cover the sins of all God's people from the beginning to the end in one great sacrifice. And so, since God means for the sin of Adam and the sin of the last elect person on the face of the earth to be covered, he would have to go back there and start right there. And that year he'd have to die. And the next year he'd have to die. And the next year he'd have to die. Right up until the last moment of history. And then... He's done dying year by year. And this writer says that is unthinkable. Why? It's unthinkable because it belittles the glory of the death of Jesus and the person and his worth who died. If he had to die over and over and over and over and over again, what would we think of those deaths? They wouldn't be sufficient. None of those deaths would be very great. You've got a year's worth here and a year's worth here and a year's worth here and a year's worth here. No way, we would say, if that's the way he were doing it, could one great glorious sacrifice of the Son of God because of his infinite value compensate for all the sins that have ever been sinned by God's people. But that's the way it is. And that's why he could never be offered more than once. The issue here is how to keep from shaming Jesus. We get to Hebrews 12. It says he despised the shame and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. Yes, there was shame in the cross once and it was one triumphant shame. Because when he was so shamed to have crowns of crown of thorns pushed into his head and spit running down his beard and and a rod beat over his back and the whip and the mockery and the blindfold and the purple robe and the sword thrust into his side and the nails in his hands and that heaving and screaming and nakedness. You talk about shame for the Son of God. When he endured that and despised it for our sake, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. And I, I tell you, if I were Spielberg or anybody else, and I wanted one scene, I would want that scene. I would want the scene of the son walking with the scars And with the spit up out of the grave and being seated and watching the whole world go down. That's what I want to see. If he died yearly, but he didn't. Now let's go to verse 26 and watch this writer gloriously describe for us in four steps the magnificence and the beauty of what happened there. But now, there's one of the four things I want you to see. But now once, second, at the consummation of the ages, third, he manifested himself to put away sin, fourth, by the sacrifice of himself. Just a word on each of those four things. And what I'm praying now as I preach, God will do 
is that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ would shine in this room right now. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it would go through physical eyes and ears into your hearts. And that you would apprehend at a level that begets genuine, heartfelt, abiding faith. You would apprehend the glory of Christ. First, take the word once. Now, once. He came and he offered himself. That means that he cannot do it again. It cannot be repeated. Only something like Star Wars can be enhanced with computers, not Jesus. You can't enhance the atonement. It is finished. There is no improvement upon it. It is so gloriously complete and sufficient that it reaches all the way back to the foundation of the world and all the way to the end of the world and covers every sin that will ever be committed by all of God's people so that they can walk faultless before the throne. The one for allness of the death of Jesus is a glory. See the glory this morning. See the glory of one sacrifice. Not many. Secondly, take the phrase, at the consummation of the ages. That's a troubling phrase, isn't it? Here we are 2,000 years later. In what sense then could he speak of Jesus 2,000 years ago coming at the end of the ages. The consummation of the ages is what was happening in the death of the Son of God. In a nutshell, here's the biblical orientation that we need to that sentence. The Jewish people, biblically, were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And when the Messiah would come, it would be the end of history as we know it. It would be the arrival of the kingdom of God. God would have come in the Messiah. Enemies defeated. Righteousness established. Peace reigning. And then the mystery of the gospel is that the Messiah comes. The kingdom comes. The king arrives. Sins are forgiven. Peace Partly is granted and life goes on and the Romans don't get defeated and saints still die and cancer still strikes and saints still sin. What's this? And it's the mystery of the end being extended. The first coming of the Messiah and the second coming that we're going to talk about next week of the Messiah are one climactic historical end of the ages. And this period where we live is a glorious, gracious extension of history in the overlap of the kingdom mercifully to gather in saints from all the tribes and tongues and peoples and nations so that the body would be full when that sword falls which it will 
and perhaps very soon. So don't, don't dispute this. The coming of Jesus Christ and the dying for sin is the consummation of the ages and the extension of the end in which we live is for our enjoyment of it in part and our gathering of as many people into it as we possibly can before the second half of the end closes the chapter. This is the glory of the cross that history was penetrated by the final coming of the kingdom in Jesus. Thirdly, take the word sacrificed himself. Oh, that I had words for this. I wish I had a a big 40-foot wide screen and appropriate technology for which there is none. Because... If you wanted to choose from all the beings in the universe, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, a being to die, that sin might be covered, and you wanted to choose the most glorious, the most valuable, the most precious, the most beautiful, the most innocent being in all of history and in all the universe, whom would you choose? You would choose Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And God chose him. And he's the one who died. Test yourself, you who doubt. You who doubt that you could be forgiven because of the filth in your life. Ask yourself this question. Which is greater? The evil of my life's sinfulness or the virtue and value of the Son of God in his dying? And when you ask that question, beware lest you blaspheme in the answer. Because, I'll say it again, it's blasphemy to say, I'm too sinful. For this Christ to save. That's blasphemy. That takes the blood of the infinitely valuable Son of God and says it is no more valuable than my sin is terrible. And God didn't do it that way. He sent Christ into the world not only to cover your filth, but the filth of millions upon millions of people. That's how valuable the Son of God is. This is the glory of the gospel. Lastly, take the phrase to put away sin there in verse 26. This is breathtaking when you when you ponder that he didn't say to put away sins. I don't know if you can feel this. I'm sure I don't feel it adequately, but picture this now. There is in the universe, since the fall of Lucifer, this massive reality called sin. And as a mass, it's a big, huge, life-destroying mass, it rests upon God's people. And when Christ died, he took the whole mass, crushing his people, 
And he put it away. It's gone. There are no words to describe the glory of that act. That all of the sin, all the filth of just take this 500 people here. And then multiply it by all the filth of the millions upon millions who are worshiping the Lord today. And who will one day, and who have throughout history, all that awful, horrible, God-defying, glory-trampling sin. Put it all in one great, horrible sewer. Huge and awful. And picture this event taking it and putting it. Way. Way. And as you leave this morning, just a minute, breathe the freedom. Breathe the freedom. Oh, how free, free we should be. No condemnation. No defilement in heaven. Consciences that are clean because the cross once at the consummation of the age, through the sacrifice of the Son of God, has put it away. That is the glory of the gospel. Father, I pray that the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ would penetrate. Right now, come Holy Spirit and make it penetrate into the hearts of everyone in this room. May we savor it. May we live in it. May we glory in it. May it be our rock underneath and our tower and our refuge and our food and our drink and our hope and our joy forever. And all God's people said, Amen.